Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon and welcome. Great to have you with us. Good to have you on board for this uh, Tuesday, 13th day of February. That means tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Better get a cracking, guys. Well, ladies, too, right? This needs to be fair on both sides. Let me start the show by saying I have one of the best engineers, Probably in the entire country. The the only complaint I have is that occasionally, I didn't do it all the time, but occasionally, around a little after 5 o'clock, if I'm not where he wants me to be, boy, he gets demanding up and down the hallways, yelling my name through the PA system. And, you know, it isn't fair because I never do it to him. That's that's what's known as having to contend with a rogue talk show host. And uh, my recommendation, Miles, is get a short leash on me. That's that's all. All right. I had to give him a bad time. He does a great job. Hey, we got a great show lined up for you tonight. So without any ado, further ado, let's get down to cases. We begin with an update on the status of ACA1. Now, as we have reported on this program for many months now, this is a outright effort to weaken the threshold that is required to pass tax increases. And, of course, as usual, in Sacramento, they like to use a lot of semantical games and tell you that, oh, this is in order to make sure we can pass infrastructure-related bonds and special taxes. And, of course, you drive down the road and potholes big enough to swallow your entire vehicle. People say, oh, better infrastructure. I can go along with that. It really, at the core is local government working to try and raise taxes, reduce the threshold, as I m- mentioned a moment ago, and uh, and get away with not being fiscally responsible. Let's get the latest now from Susan Shelley, President of Communications with the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. Susan, welcome. Great to have you with us. Give us an update on where things stand right now in being able to address this at the ballot box. Well, it's going to be very interesting. ACA 1 is on the ballot for November. You won't see it on your March ballot, but you'll see it on your November ballot. And now the fight is about whether the governments are going to be allowed to trick the voters into passing tax increases or not. Now, ACA 1 amends Prop 13, so it cuts down the threshold needed to pass a special tax from two-thirds, which it currently is, to 55%. Well, the question now is, will they be able to use all these tricks to make you think that taxes are one thing when they really are something else? And this is what's going on with trying to stop the Taxpayer Protection Act, which is also on the ballot in November 2024. Now, the Taxpayer Protection Act is a good thing, and the governor and the legislature are trying to get it off the ballot before people can vote for it. And this is all part of the effort to let the local governments raise taxes more easily and to ignore the Constitution or change the Constitution or trick people. And it's got to stop. Taxes are too high in California. So, yes, on the Taxpayer Protection Act, if they don't knock it off the ballot, yes, on the Taxpayer Protection Act, and no on ACA1. We're going to have our hands full from an education standpoint between now and next November. And to put this in perspective, and I want to urge everyone listening who owns property here in California, uh, you want a wonderful little exercise in how important the protections of Proposition 13 are and what even what would appear to be a minuscule... (laughs) 
probably a minor change in in reducing the threshold from two-thirds to 55%, what it might mean for you and your property taxes. If you go to guessinggame.org, that's guessinggame.org, and just put in the value of your home as of right now. You can look it up online. You can get an estimated value of your, of your, your residence, your home. Put that into, into the field in guessinggame.org and then hit calculate and wow, what a shocker it will be. I did that a few moments ago, Susan, and I determined that it would mean an increase in my current property tax rate of 500% equal in a lot of cases to what a house payment would be, quite frankly, and sans the ability to, to have that cap as we've enjoyed since 1978, it would have meant that the state of California could have increased the value of my home. Talk about inflation, 18.5% annually over the course of the 23, 24 years that I've been an owner to get me that 500% percent threshold. That's a shocker. It's really, it's really true. Guessinggame.org is the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association calculator that shows you what your property taxes would be if Prop 13 had never passed. Because before Prop 13, you were assessed on the market value of your home every year, which is something you can't control. It could go up 25% in one year, and it did at one time, and you could do nothing about it. And then the tax rate was a statewide average of 2.67% of the market value of your home every year as a condition of keeping your property. So people who bought their home more recently than 1978 very often make the mistake of thinking that they're not protected by Prop 13. Oh, I don't have Prop 13, we'll hear them say. Yes, they do have Prop 13. Everybody is protected by Prop 13. If it had never passed, that's what you would be paying right now in property taxes, statewide average. And I won't tell you that it's shocking or horrifying. I will tell you that it is in the out on the street category. And it would be true for so many uh, Californians, especially those who perhaps reach retirement age, they're on a fixed income, they think, okay, worked real hard, bought a home, paid the mortgage. Now I get a chance to enjoy uh, my final years if it had not been for Howard Jarvis and Proposition 13, I would argue that most seniors today, it would be impossible them for them to remain in their homes in California. You know, with inflation the way it is, I think it's impossible for everybody. I don't know how many people could afford to buy the home that they already own if they had to go out on the market and buy it at today's prices. It's crazy. And, of course, we see so many young people who don't think they have any hope of ever catching up to it. And something has to be done about that. We need more housing construction, and we need all kinds of different policies to encourage what's needed for people to be able to afford homes. Now, one other question for you, Susan, in addition to uh, protecting us by preserving the language in Proposition 13 and retaining the two-thirds requirement to pass um, bonds and and tax increases, uh, there's also a companion issue. This relates to uh, repealing the death tax here in California as associated with the, uh, what should we say, political sleight of hand that took place back in 2020 with Proposition 19. Half of which was not a bad idea, the other half of which has turned out to be horrific. Exactly. It it took away the parent-child transfer protection. So it used to be the case that parents could pass property to their kids, a home and a limited amount of other property, with no change to the tax bill. And now under Prop 19, they slipped this in. 
they took that protection away and all the property is reassessed to current market value when passed from parents to children, which is a very rude shock because no one can afford these taxes and they end up having to sell family property, not just homes. If they can't move into them immediately, then they get reassessed, but also small business properties, duplexes, fourplexes, small apartment buildings, any kind of small business, any vacation cabin, any kind of property that's other than the principal residence reassessed to current market value. And the principal residence is reassessed to current market value unless the children move into it and make it their primary residence within one year. And even that is capped. So many people are still seeing a tax increase. Yeah, and that $1 million cap is ridiculous because we know in parts of the Bay Area, as an example, uh, you can have a shack that's worth $1.5 million. And it's tragic because at the end of the day, mom or dad dies, grandma, grandpa dies, your friends send you sympathy cards, the state effectively sends you an eviction notice. I mean, for a lot of people, that's what it comes down to. And, you know, I feel for the assessors. They don't want to be doing this. They don't want to send people who are grieving letters saying we're going to reassess your property. They don't want to do They don't want to get those phone calls. They don't want to make those phone calls. But they have no choice because the law says that people have one year to make this decision to drop everything, sell where they're living, move into their parents' property, and stay there forever. Because if they move out again... It's reassessed to current wow. market value. Wow, wow, wow. You know, once again, indicative of the fact that politicians in this state simply don't know how to control their spending. The only thing that they apparently know how to do is raise taxes, and they will do any amount of political gerrymandering, political sleight of hand, manipulation, whatever, in order to get it done. Uh, we're going to be talking about this between now and November because it's going to be an uphill battle in terms of education. So let's start with you. If you're not aware of these issues going on, First, let me send you to guessinggame.org. It's easy enough. Go to guessinggame.org and put in the estimated value of your home today. And you can also look that number up easily anywhere on the Internet. Just put in your street address and half a dozen real estate companies will come up and give you an estimated value. And then be prepared for a shocker. And then we encourage you to hang out at the Howard Jarvis Taxpayer Association's website and get more information about the repealing, um, you know, the attempt to repeal parts of Proposition 13, ACA 1, and uh, what we'll be facing come the November 2024 ballot. Again, online, go to guessinggame.org. That's guessinggame.org. The Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association at hjta.org. Our thanks to Susan Shelley, President of Communications with the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association for that update, 515. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, California's ground zero for a lot of things, for ground zero for entertainment, certainly for technology, Silicon Valley, et cetera, et cetera. Sadly, we're also ground zero for parental rights, but not in a good way, as explains Greg Bird, Director of Capital Engagement for the California Family Council. And, uh, Greg, we've spent some time on the program talking about some aspects of this, uh, most notably down in uh, Southern California San Diego, uh, where there have been issues there of, of teachers being forced to essentially lie to parents and, and play along with the gender dysphoria game, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, this is no game. And uh, most recently, what has unfolded up in uh, Northern California in the Rockland Unified School District is particularly troubling. Tell listeners what's going on. 
Yeah, uh, we have been fighting this last year to um, get school districts to implement something called a parent notification policy. Because we um, have discovered um, that many school districts are talking about to kids about gender identity. Uh, they're telling kids they can pick their gender and they start this in elementary school. And not unsurprisingly, more and more kids are coming out uh, and saying, hey, I don't think I'm the gender I was told when I was born, right? Um, or my whole entire life. And so kids are, changing their names and they're changing their pronouns. And the schools um, taking note, uh, not note, but they're taking the, the following, the Department of Ed's policy on this. And if a kid changes, asked to have their name changed, asked to be a different gender, the school is supposed to keep this secret from the parents. So you can imagine what's happening is more and more kids are identifying as something other than their natal sex, um, and but the, the parent, the, the teachers have to keep this secret from parents. So they're using pronouns that the kids want in class. But when they talk to their parents, they have to tr go back to their original pronoun and name of the student. It's crazy. And so two parents down in Orange County, uh, down in uh, uh, down south um, in Escondido, just refused to do this and filed a federal lawsuit and the federal judge closed down this secrecy policy. So at the same time, at the same time, other schools, we have 10 of them now, that have introduced uh, parent notification policies. And one of those schools is Rockland Unified. But the, uh, and we have, and we have the attorney general who's, who filed a lawsuit against one of these schools. But up here in Rockland, who piled, uh, filed a notification policy, the Department of Ed just uh, did an investigation because somebody complained that uh, they complained to the Department of Ed's Education Equity Office. Didn't know we had one of those. Um, and the Equity Office determined that. Rockland schools have broken the law and they are discriminating and uh, against transgender kids because they have a notification policy and that they're violating their privacy rights. Now, when I say privacy rights, they're saying minors have a privacy right from their own parents, right? That the, the state is obligated to protect. This is never, the, our privacy laws here in the state have never been interpreted that way, but that is what's happening and so, there's, there's this dynamic where the federal courts are saying one thing, and then the state government is saying something else. So uh, let, let me um, see so if I can put this back. into an illustration that listeners can, can thoroughly relate to, Greg. Uh, let's say, for example, you have a son or a daughter. Uh, they're at puberty. They're going through changes. Their body's going through changes. They're, they're not a child anymore, but neither are they an adult. And so uh, said son or daughter, for whatever reason, peer pressure, whatever, uh, draws the conclusion that they think that they might have been born in the wrong body, the wrong gender. And so knowing that this perhaps would not necessarily go over um, smashingly with mom or dad, son or daughter decides that uh, on the way to school, they will change clothing, they will change hairstyle, and they might leave the house as a boy but arrive at school as a girl or vice versa. Now, this set of 
conflicting behavior can can set up all kinds of of, of emotional scarring, confusion, uh, you know, everything from from being bullied. You I mean you name it. At the end of the day, it can be very problematic for a child. But according to what you're telling me, of the viewpoint of the attorney general's office, it would prohibit a school district or a teacher from a notifying the parents of said child that this behavior is going on, effectively creating this barrier of secrecy where the child would be able to live a double life, receive no benefit of parental counseling or um, psychological counseling or spiritual counseling, let alone even basic parental awareness of what their son or daughter is doing. And if the school district or a representative thereof were to notify the parent of what's going on with their own child, that would be considered breaking the law. Did I get that about right? Yeah, that's correct. Wow. That's what's happening. Wow. And it's happening on a wider and wider basis. And so they're doubling down, even though the federal courts for, for decades have established that parents have the right to determine how a child is raised. Right, it's a parent who decides what value the child has, who who does who does the upbringing, right? And so, if there's a disagree, and so parents should be completely involved. There should be no secret between a school and a child, um, and but that is what they are now arguing. So we have the federal courts uh, standing up to defend um, uh, these notification policies. Um, they're actually striking down the secrecy policies, but at the same time, um, you know, the state is doing the opposite. And the, and the interesting thing is, in the case down in Escondido, the Department of Ed is, in, it was, is, is one of the uh, people being sued. And down in that court, uh, the, the Department of Ed said, hey, you know, we're not forcing school districts to... Uh, you know, keep secrets. You know, this is this is just guidance, right? We we haven't threatened, we haven't taken anybody's funding away, right? So you can't hold us responsible for what this school does. But at the same time, the department is now going after Rockland, and it said it did this investigation, and it says if you don't change your policy, we will take your funding, right? So. Um, and so I, I talked to the attorney that's defending the teachers down in Escondido, and he gave me a quote and said, this is really strange that they would make two different arguments no matter where they are, right? And so they're, they're going to keep pressing the Department of Ed and hold them accountable for violating parental rights. And so that, that part's encouraging. It looks like there's going to be a, a battle royale set up here if you've already had a federal judge ruling against this sort of discrimination uh, and quote-unquote student privacy policy. It would seem to me it's only a matter of time before this makes its way back up the, the, the ladder of courts. You're right. It, it, it was an initial decision. Um, it was uh, a preliminary injunction to the secrecy policy. And so that's, you know, when when someone is filed a lawsuit and they're pretty much guaranteed that, you know, they're going to win, a judge will say, OK, we're cutting this policy now. And so the the. They still have to go to court to finalize it. But once that's made final, um, it's going to affect the entire state. And just recently, last uh, a couple weeks ago, the judge asked that Bonta, 
uh, Attorney General Bonta and the governor be added to the case. So it would be very clear uh, when the the case is decided that this doesn't just apply to this particular school district. This applies to the entire uh, state and the Department of Ed, the Attorney General and the governor is going to have to um, be held accountable for violating the constitutional rights of these teachers and parents. Yeah, and understandably so. And we already have presidents to suggest that that might happen. We'd had Dean Boyles on the program several weeks ago. He's, of course, um, an attorney and president of the National Center for Law and Policy. He represented a teacher down in Southern California who refused to go along with this so-called secrecy policy, and he was successful in obtaining a religious accommodation for his client. Uh, That, of course, means that the district there will no longer be able to require the teacher to use a student's uh, quote-unquote preferred pronouns nor keep secret a student's gender identity from their parents. So we have the president setting case. It's just not being applied across the state of California. But um, looks like time may uh, may force a ruling on that. Our thanks to Greg Burt, Director of Capital Engagement for the California Family Council, for that update. Boy, like I say, California is the center of a lot of good things, but increasingly, not many of them are good. 5.30 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Bit of a quick history lesson for you in the world of music. Clear back in 1968. Boy, we're really <laughs> pulling back the calendar here, our way. There was a major chart-topping hit for Sammy Davis Jr. The song was entitled I've Gotta Be Me. If I had time, I'd sing it for you. But uh, we'd probably see Miles turn the microphone off, so we will Spare you, spare you the pain. Well, it might have been a hit song, but for a lot of people, being me is not all that comfortable. In fact, growing numbers of Americans are terrified of being me because the me that they know, that they see in the mirror, well, quite frankly, is somebody that they don't love at all. In fact, they even loathe. Our next guest is an award-winning author. Her latest book, Learning to Love, Not Loathe Me, newly released by Holy Spirit Press, will be available starting tomorrow, Wednesday. Dr. Elizabeth Fulgaro joins us now. And Dr. Fulgaro, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. Um, Not boring the listeners with my uh, vocal renditions, (laughs) notwithstanding. Uh, Give us some insight. You know, we went from sort of the me generation in the 1980s when it was all about about me, but now it seems that in the ensuing 40 years, more and more people, and I suspect a lot of this has to do with family of origin, things of that sort, where they've been exposed to so many negative messages that they reach the point where the person that they see in the mirror, they don't have a very valuable opinion of, which of course um, runs quite contrary to what we see God's opinion is of us as his creation. Thank you for having me, Craig. Yes, that's exactly what happens. Uh, Although I would argue that it goes back a longer time than that uh, because I predate (laughs) the 1980s. And so for me, the messages that began to embed that uh, caused my thoughts to be more negative towards myself. And and, for a lot of us, it starts with, well, I'm just not good enough. 
does some and of this become, in a sense, almost sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy? And by that, I mean, uh, I make note of the fact that quite often there are messages, messages that we get from our, our family of origin, where we might have had a parent that always called us a failure or called us stupid or useless or irresponsible, maybe even told us that we were ugly and unwanted or unlovable. And after a while, I would imagine, particularly for a vulnerable child that doesn't know any different, those childhood messages get almost imprinted on the brain and later on in life, even though certainly from a Christian perspective, from God's viewpoint, none of that is true. Nevertheless, I wonder, Dr. Filgaro, if we begin to sort of most engage in, in self-fulfilling prophecy and that we have, we have come to buy into those lives so often that later on in life, our thinking process, our behavior, the people that we surround ourselves with, all kind of tends to underscore many of those negative images. Well, the field of of psychology has done lots of research that demonstrates that what we take in and what we see through other people, how they see us, that's like a mirror. And so we begin to interpret ourselves according to how others see us. It's not not conscious even. This is a subconscious activity that happens. And, you know, the Bible talks about what we're exposed to orally because the Bible is written for us but many people for centuries they heard it told to them right or read so what we hear what we see what we take in does imprint it engraves God says engrave it on your heart right but he's talking about how he sees us so there's a constant battle afoot of needing to become more and more aware of how God sees us versus these messages that we've received but the big difficulty is most of us have these messages already embedded the negative ones by the time we're of an age where we become self-aware enough to start trying to evaluate well what have i heard how do i see myself by then you're already looking at yourself that through that lens of i don't matter i'm not good enough you disqualify yourself and when you disqualify yourself, of course, now all of a sudden you're, you're no longer striving to reach any kind of bar of excellence in your education, in your behavior, in your relationships. And not only does that impact, I would imagine, the way you see yourself, but the way you see the rest of the world around you and the way you engage in it. I mean, if a person who truly sees himself as being created in the very image of God himself and values the life that God has breathed within him or her, can that same person be readily capable of committing murder? I would suspect not. But on the other hand, if you believe that life is useless and, and it's nothing but an endless game and there's no value to it whatsoever, then even the worst case of someone devaluing their own selves and then ultimately others would seem to be a pretty easy step. Well, I think that it goes a couple of different directions. It can go the direction you're talking about, but this is actually a little bit more insidious than that. And it impacts, therefore, a lot more people, especially in the church. Uh, Really, one of the manifestations of not liking yourself or not feeling good enough is perfectionism. Some of the highest achieving people who appear the most successful either don't like themselves, loathe themselves, find themselves not good enough, and so they're always striving, striving, striving to reach this bar of good enoughness. So it's a little bit more insidious than that. 
it, it's a little bit more pervasive than you might expect. Some of the people that you think are the most successful are struggling with on a day-in, day-out basis. So while they might appear at least from a distance or from the outside as happy, successful, balanced achievers, overachievers, and we think, wow, they must really have a sense of great self-worth and high esteem. In fact, just the opposite is true. And no wonder why suddenly somebody like that that seems to be on this fast track toward success so rapidly crashes and burns and everybody around them says, gee, we we didn't see it coming. What happened? It's fascinating insight, doctor. Yeah, well, and it can it, it, it can manifest that way, right? Or you can be a person like me where you just keep muddling along and you keep going. But here's what happens is a lot of times you won't, unless you get a real kind of a jolt from God or something else happens to kind of bring you to a different awareness or cause you to look outside these, these windows that you've put that you're looking through or your lenses, you're not necessarily then going to be able to walk fully into what God wants for you. And you're not going to be able to do your part in the body of Christ that he made you for, what he designed you for. All that beauty that you were supposed to bring to the whole world, because every person matters. Every person is a part of God's plan. Every person has a vital role to play the body of Christ. And I'm not talking titles or positions. You know, that's not what Jesus was about. But even the ability to to begin to love others well or to stand up for justice or to use your voice or to know that sometimes when you're ill, just giving a smile to your caregiver or as a caregiver giving a smile to someone else instead of being so beaten down with your own thoughts. You can really manifest the love of Jesus in so many different ways. The other thing that happens is when you are stuck in self-loathing, and this is what happened to me, you think that you made all these thoughts up yourself. You think they're the truth. You think they're the truth because that's all you know. You don't know you can think a different way. And then you think you did it to, you're doing it to yourself. But in reality, what I've learned through my research is that those negative thoughts, as you pointed out in the beginning, they don't form in a vacuum. They, they happen because of interactions that you've had with people or experiences that you've had. Some of them are quite heinous, very traumatic. Others, perhaps, you've interpreted something a different way. But most of the time, if you're interpreting something, there's going to be a reason for that. Now, I'm not saying that all people are, are, are evil and trying to cause harm to others. A lot of times, we just don't have the emotional maturity. We haven't gained the skill set that we need to love well and to interact in a way that has a healthy effect for us as individuals and with one another. We need to, we need to set our bar higher. And we need to take responsibility as Christians to begin to go after emotional health so that we can heal where we've been harmed. And there's some work here because oftentimes we're talking about 10, 20, 30 decades worth of these negative impressions and having been exposed to the lie and then believing the lie, buying into the lie and then living the lie. And so I would imagine that there's oftentimes a lot of work in in sort of unraveling those lies and bringing a person back to the truth or exposing them to the truth of who they are from God's viewpoint in the very first place. Dr. Fulgaro, we need an hour 
We were given <laughs> barely enough time to touch on this subject, but I'd dearly love to have you back again and go deeper into this subject matter because I know that it impacts so many people, maybe even perhaps people that are eavesdropping on this conversation that are not even aware of the fact that at the end of the day, their behavior is oftentimes directly tied into that sense of self-loathing. The book is called Learning to Love, Not Loathe Me. It will be available tomorrow published by Holy Spirit Press. And Dr. Filgaro has been gracious enough to provide a couple, of, a couple of copies of the book to some listeners. That's right. We've got two autographed copies of her book to give away. Be caller number three and four. Make it easy that way. Caller number three and four to triple eight F O R K F A X. That's 888-367-5329. Callers three and four. And an autographed copy of Dr. Elizabeth Fulgaro's new book, Learning to Love, Not Loathe Me, published by Holy Spirit Press. will be off in the mail to you without cost or obligation. Callers three or four right now to 888-367-5329-888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, our conversation a bit earlier in tonight's program with Greg Burt concerning the whole issue of parental rights and parental notification and what you're allowed to know and not know about your own minor um, is certainly demonstrative of the notion that California is not a parental rights friendly state, nor I think in a large sense in the greatest definition of the term could be considered even a family friendly state. But there is one state that is aiming to change all of that and we get details now about what's afoot in the state of Idaho as we're joined by Brad Dacus constitutional lawyer and the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute and certainly we're in an unprecedented period of time counselor as you and I discuss on this program almost each and every week of, of attacks on the family on parental rights uh, I mean you, you name it we are creating particularly in states like California uh, such a hostile environment uh, which uh, I think presents a, a bit of a surprise that uh, Idaho is at least willing to go on record, uh, apparently with a support for a resolution that would, in fact, um, help to uh, celebrate traditional family values. Give us more insights as to what's going on. Yeah, we at Pacific Justice Institute, through our attorney in our Idaho office, uh, Catherine Hartley, uh, we uh, co-sponsored uh, a bill, a resolution, that will, uh, it's called HCR 20, that will uh, create what's called the uh, Traditional Family Values Month. It uh, starts with Mother's Day, and then it ends at Father's Day. Uh, so it's an interesting time frame. And in there, uh, we're able to, to recognize uh, the value of uh, a biological female mother, a biological male father, uh, children, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and other extended family. And in fact, research has demonstrated, Craig, that children raised in traditional families are more likely to lead successful lives than those who've not experienced the same level of family security and stability. Uh, the benefits include lower risk of drug addiction, lower incidences of participating in criminal activities, higher academic achievement, less mental illness, fewer teenage pregnancies, less suicide, the list goes on. So this is recognizing and affirming something that is beneficial to all society and uh, something that should not be undermined by anyone 
because we all benefit from the traditional institution of marriage uh, to the extent to which it's strong in America. And now this is not in any way to suggest that a single parent family, because divorce sometimes happens or a spouse is irresponsible and uh, leaves the, the uh, other spouse behind to, uh, to fend for themselves and care for the kids, that they are somehow undervalued or less than, but really I think helps celebrate an ideal. Like, for example, we, we will say that there is an employee of the month. Why? Because there's an individual who has demonstrated themselves to be dedicated towards higher degrees of efficiency, customer service, uh, production, things of this sort. And I think at the end of the day, it all gives us the ability to see the bar set higher so we all have something to strive for. Is that is that essentially what kind of enshrines the spirit of what you're trying to accomplish here? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, you know, being a single parent um, is, is very... Uh, can be very burdensome. It can be very uh, not, you know, it can be something that uh, is is more difficult. Um, and yet, with the love of Christ and uh, the the work of God in a in a family and in different formations, um, you know, God gives great healing and victory over those obstacles, over those hurts and things that that are involved in situations. And also, I like to note that. You know, even the traditional family, uh, just because you have a traditional family doesn't mean uh, you're not going to have uh, hurdles and obstacles and things you have to work through and, and disappointments, et cetera. Um, it's just simply, this is just simply recognizing that um, overall the, the, the value that a traditional family unit has for the strength of a nation, for uh, many of the, the benefits of our nation and our national development, which we all often uh, take for granted in our culture. That this is originating in a state like Idaho, probably a, not a big surprise. I could even see other neighboring states like Utah uh, potentially adopting something like this. Does it become a bit of an embarrassment for states like our own, like California? Yeah, it does. <laughs> it really does, because uh, this is something every state should pass. I mean, uh, this is this is positive. Uh, there's nothing controversial uh, you know, negative. Uh, the, the traditional family unit has proven itself statistically uh, to the studies and after studies um, it's a, to be a, a benefit for all in, in a terms of a, a strong nation as well as uh, giving uh, definite uh, benefits to the uh, the individual culture and, and community. Um, so this is something that every state should recognize. We should all embrace it and appreciate that which God has created and um, and really would like to, to bless um, societies and cultures with, I think, all the more if we turn to him and, and choose to follow uh, his, uh, his word and, and what has been proven itself through all kinds of cultures around the world uh, to be strong and self-evidently um, beneficial. And as you point out, there are already ways in which, to a degree, we, we, we engage in at least to a minuscule degree uh, such celebrations. I mean, we celebrate Mother's Day, but it's one day on the calendar, it comes and goes. This would give us a greater degree of focus and celebration by spreading it out over the course of an entire week. Uh, ditto certainly Father's Day, but added to the list would be, during the second week of this uh, celebration, uh, that of sons and brothers and uncles, and then 
Lincoln movie next. We've got to make sure the ladies are uh, getting their fair share, daughters, sisters, and aunts. And then also celebrating grandparents, which, you know, we've seen so much of a disconnection, not only in the in the nu- so-called nuclear family, but the extended family, sadly, has kind of fallen by the wayside. I think a lot of that has to do with the sort of transitory uh, culture and society in which we live. People stay for a few years. They get an opportunity for another job. The family grows. They move to another house. And the disconnect of mileage oftentimes between parents, grandparents, kids, and their aunts and uncles tends to grow. And at the end of the day, that's not the healthiest scenario either. Oh, you're absolutely right. It's so beneficial for children to have relatives around, grandparents around. Um, You know, the days of of Walton may seem to be, you know, far from us, from the Waltons. I'm aging myself here, Craig. But um, nonetheless, uh, uh, studies show that children do benefit from uh, those those environments where they do have uh, extended relatives and family uh, in their lives something that we need to appreciate and salute, uh, particularly as these extended families sometimes even play a, a greater role and need to play a greater role because of other deficiencies in the immediate family. Undoubtedly so. Well, uh, hats off to the efforts there in the state of Idaho. And all I can say is, California, are you paying any attention? Yeah, probably not. But maybe that indicates that we need to be uh, encouraging Sacramento to do so because, boy, right now, the direction, the track that we're heading down is not a healthy one, not in California. So maybe a good example being set forth there in the state of Idaho. Our thanks for that update. Brad Dake is constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. Coming up on the program tomorrow, Valentine's Day, hour number two, Reverend Tim and Vanessa Russell will join us. We're going to have a spirited discussion about Valentine's Day and how to find and keep a happy and successful marriage relationship. Should be a lot of fun. We're looking forward to the conversation that's coming up tomorrow, Valentine's Day, hour number two on this edition of Lifeline. Right now, a timeout. Back with more. Our hour two is coming up in just a few moments from KFAX.